This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. So come with me this morning to Luke chapter 23. I'm going to begin reading from verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do, not even fear, do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We're following on this morning from the message that we shared last week. We're looking at these seven statements that Jesus made from the cross during those six hours of his crucifixion. This was the time of the Jewish Passover. And as you can imagine, there would be literally thousands of people that had come to Jerusalem for the most solemn of all of the, the feasts of Israel throughout the year. And so they would come from all over Israel, and they would come from all over the Roman Empire. They would make this special journey as Jews and as proselytes just to be there for this particular feast. And so they would be remembering especially uh, the Israelites, how that whenever they were in Egypt and they were in the land of Goshen and how that Pharaoh was making things really tough and difficult for them. But God raised up Moses, a deliverer, and he set them free with a great mighty hand and how they crossed the Red Sea. But they remember most especially how that that night when the death angel would pass over Egypt and would smite all the firstborn in the land. And only those who had, in the land of Goshen, only those who had killed a sacrificial lamb and put the blood on the doorposts and lentils, whenever the death angel would see the blood, then he would pass over and they would be spared, their lives would be saved. And then after that, they left for the promised land. And so they would particularly remember that. That was a special time. But outside Jerusalem, on a hill called Calvary, 
And the Greek word is calvaria, which simply means skull. And in Matthew's gospel, it's called Golgotha in the Hebrew, which is cranion, which is where we get cranium from, which is skull. Now, we're not exactly sure why it's called that. Some believe it's because the hill where Christ, the belief, was crucified, the topography of that was in the shape of a, a human skull. But be that as it may, that's simply what Calvary means. And it was on Calvary that the true Lamb of God, the one who... John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was on the cross that that true Lamb of God uh, was slain and that his blood was shed. And those who believe that his blood can save and we put it on the doorpost and lentils of our hearts, spiritually speaking, then we are spared and our lives are saved forever. But on Calvary's hill that day, there were three crosses. Christ was crucified between two, three thieves. There's three crosses, there was three men, there was three lives lived, and each very differently. Somebody said that one was a sinner, that one was sorry, and one was a savior. One rebelled, one repented, one redeemed. One lost his life, one found his life, one gave his life. So let's look this morning. We want to come in a little bit about that statement that Jesus made from the cross because that's really what we're looking at. But let's look at the scene around it. Let's look at these two thieves, one on his right hand, one on his left. First of all, the one who rebelled, the one who lost his life, the one who refused to repent. I wonder where it all began to go wrong in his life. I wonder how it all started. I wonder how he became so hard and calloused and cruel that even at the last was still a blasphemer. Even in his dying breath, he was blaspheming in the very Son of God. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going out into eternity cursing the very Son of God? He was some mother's son. We dedicated a beautiful little baby today. At one point, his parents probably took him to the temple to be dedicated. He was a mother's son. I wonder what the family life was like. I wonder, was it a dysfunctional family as we talk about today? I wonder, was it an absentee dad? I wonder, did the marriage last? We don't know. I wonder, did he steal all our kids' toys? <laughs> I wonder, was there something? You know, today, psychiatrists and psychologists, they talk about nature and nurture. You know, when something goes wrong in, in, in a life, is it nature, is it nurture? And we tend to fall on the side of, of, of nurture because we want somebody to blame. But we don't know who was to blame here, if anybody. Maybe just something within him just decided that he wanted to be like this. I wonder in his youth did he fall in with the wrong crowd? I wonder did he get in with the wrong ones? You know the old saying, if you lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. Uh, and I wonder if that was the case in his life. Or maybe he was the ringleader. Maybe he was the one who was the center of all. We just don't know. 
I wonder did he ever promise when he was caught that he would never ever do it again. And then the next day he was back into that life of crime. But now he's a man. And the sin is ingrained. His conscience is seared. His heart is truly hardened. He's no petty thief anymore. He's ruthless. He's not been hung on that cross because he stole an apple of a stall. This is a man who was ruthless, maybe even committed murder. Remember Barabbas that Pilate released? You want me to release a murder to you? You know, many believe that that middle cross is where Barabbas should have hung. But Jesus took his place and took our place because that's where we should have been. But here he is. Crime has caught up with him. And yes, the Romans had laws, and yes, they had courts. But the trouble was, if you were found guilty, it was the death sentence. And so here he is, the wages of sin is for sure. It's being paid out in this cross. And yet the tragedy of this all is that just a few feet away is the one who could save him, who could pardon him, who could wipe that slate clean forever. Just a few feet away. It reminds us when we talked last week about Judas, who kissed the door of heaven, Jesus, but he didn't get in. And here is this man. And yet, in just a few hours, there's going to be a great gulf fixed between them that he can never, ever cross. And so that's the one who rebelled. But then there was the one who repented. He too was a sinner, but he was a sorry sinner. He came to the place where he truly repented. Somehow we see in this thief a glimmer of hope because Matthew in his account of this story says that both of them started out blaspheming and cursing Jesus but somewhere during those hours on that cross he changed his conscience wasn't seared his heart wasn't totally hardened there was a glimmer there of something and, and we don't know exactly what the turning point was. Maybe just listening to Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Nobody ever prayed that prayer on a Roman cross before. Most of them would be cursing their executioners. But Jesus was praying for them for forgiveness. And that must have struck him. Because nobody had ever heard anybody pray that prayer on a cross before. Maybe it was just the way Jesus was taking care of his mother on the cross. By the way, we'll come to that tonight. It's a beautiful story. Or maybe it was the sign on the cross. And if you read the four Gospels, you'll see this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That's what Pilate put up there in Greek, Roman, and Latin, the three great languages and cultures of that day. 
And, and, and how the, the Jews who put him there says, no, we don't want that. He's not our king. Take that down. And it says, what I've written, I've written. Not stand up there. But at some point, this dying thief truly believed that this was the Son of God, that this was the Messiah, that this was truly the King of the Jews. And in that moment, his heart melted. His heart melted. And somehow that repentance came just in time. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a striking statement from a dying thief, you know. Because remember, the exceptions of John at the cross, all the rest of the disciples had fled. They thought there would be no kingdom because the one who believed was the king of the kingdom was down as a criminal on a Roman cross. But this thief believed. And he believed by faith because there was nothing he could see in the natural would say that Jesus was a king. <coughs> he was hanging, bleeding on a Roman cross as a criminal. Didn't look like a king. But by faith and his heart, he believed that he was a king. And Jesus answered that cry, didn't he? He says, today, today you will be with me in paradise. What a thing for that thief to hear. For most of his life, he's been a reprobate, for most of his life, he's been callous and cruel and wicked. But this is the grace of God. It almost seems not fair that he should get set free, that he should be forgiven, that he should get into paradise. But this is the grace of God. None of us deserve to go to heaven. All of us deserve to go to hell but only by the grace of God will ever get to heaven. <laughs> Today, what a hope. You shall be with me. What a helper. In paradise, what heaven. What news this man received. No purgatory here. No place to go and be purged for your sins. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus made that very, very clear. No soul sleep today. No universalism. No, everybody's going to get saved one day anyway. Today you shall be with me in paradise. Mm -hmm. But not the other one. Because there was no repentance there. Paradise. 
the word that the Lord Jesus uses for paradise here was a, a word that the Greeks used for a beautiful garden, a place of peace and tranquility, beautiful, beautiful garden. The Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible hundreds of years before Christ, they used the same word to describe the Garden of Eden. Whenever we think of the Garden of Eden, we're not just thinking about that wee patch outside your front door, sure we're not. We're thinking of somewhere that's absolutely beautiful and verdant and beautiful blossom and smells and sights and sounds, just a beautiful place of peace and tranquility. And that's the word that Jesus used when he talks about paradise. Now, Jewish scholars, when they talk about paradise, they also talk about Hades, the place of the abode of the dead, which they say are separate into two separate compartments, two separate areas, with a great vast gulf fixed between so that no one can cross. And that's what Jesus talked about in Luke 16, about the rich man and Lazarus the beggar, and how the rich man died and he went to Hades, and how the beggar died and he went to Hades, but two different places in Hades. One was a place of torment and flames and agony where he cried out over that great gulf to Father Abraham and said, let Lazarus, that beggar, dip his finger in water and come and touch my tongue. I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham says, no, I'm sorry. Nobody can cross this gulf. And you remember what he said then? Well, send them back to my brothers that they do not come to this place. And he says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them read that and they don't believe that. Then they can't come here. So Jesus was telling this man, and he uses the term in Luke 16, Abraham's bosom which is paradise, which is that beautiful place. And he says, today you will be with me there in paradise. Now there's no longer any need for that. For when Jesus was crucified, he went down and he released those from there, from Abraham's bosom, to take to the glory. Paul now says, when we die as believers, it's absent from the body, present with the Lord immediately but that's what Jesus was speaking about there and Jesus told that thief on the cross today you'll be with me in paradise Jesus died before the thief on the cross died because the Sabbath was coming on and those religious Jews went to the authorities, the Roman authorities, says, break their legs to hasten their death because we don't want them hanging on a cross on the Sabbath. <laughs> How hypocritical. And so those Roman soldiers came with iron bars to break the, the legs of the, those who were hanging on the cross, and that way they couldn't move up and get air into their lungs, and they would die very quickly. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead, wasn't he? But just to make absolutely sure, one of the soldiers took a spear and he plunged it into his side, into his heart. But then they broke the legs of the thieves. But Jesus was ready dead. He was ready waiting on that thief 
So when that thief went to paradise, Jesus was already there waiting. And whenever you die as a believer, he will be waiting for those who belong to him. But let's look finally at the one who redeemed. One lost his life, one found his life, one gave his life. The Apostle Paul, the great exponent of preaching about the cross, he says in Galatians 5.11 that the cross is an offense to people. It offends certain people. In Romans 9.33, he called it a stumbling block, a rock of offense. Let me just go quickly to 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 18. Paul said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, a scandal on, which is where we get scandal from. That's a scandal to them. And to the Greeks, foolishness. And the word is Maria, which is where we get moronic from. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so to the Jew, it was a scandal. It was embarrassing. How could he be our Messiah? How could he, dying as a criminal on a cross, how could he possibly ever be our Messiah? Because they felt that their Messiah would come with great power and great glory, and he would rid them of the Romans and the pagans. But the Romans put him on a cross. So they were scandalized. It was a stumbling block to them. And to the Greeks... Moronic foolishness. How could one man dying on a cross, how could he save the whole world from their sins if they even believed they had sins? How could they do that? It's just, it's just moronic. It makes no sense whatsoever. That's still the prevailing thought today. To the religious people who feel they're all right, they feel, well, I'm not perfect, but I haven't killed anybody and I haven't robbed anybody and I'm, I'm kind of a decent person, really, you know. So I, I really believe that God would let me into his heaven because I, I'm okay. Oh, I'm not perfect. I know that. Nobody is. But I think, I'm, I think I'm okay. I think I'm good enough. 
But that business of somebody damning a cross for me, huh? No, I'm good. I don't need that because I'm good enough. It offends them. There's people today, there are even some preachers today and some churches today that get offended by the cross. It offends them. Let me just read you something here just in a, in a second here. Steve Chuck, who used to be in morning television as a trendy reverend, he's a Baptist pastor in England. He wrote in his book, The Lost Message of Jesus, which was published in 2003. Here's what he said about John 3.16. How then have we come to believe that on the cross this God of love suddenly decides to vent his anger and wrath on his own son? The fact is that the cross isn't a form of classic child abuse. In other words, so if we believe that God gave up his son on the cross for us, that is tantamount to child abuse. Evangel father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, he says, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. In other words, he's offended that we would believe that God put his son on the cross to die for our sins. But that's exactly what God did. And it was a God of love who did that because that was the only thing that was going to save us. So God the Father had to put his son on that cross to die for our sins. That's the only reason we're saved today. There's nothing we could do or nothing we ever could do could save us. But you see, it offends people. Polly Townby, the columnist of the Guardian newspaper, I think she used to be the leader of the British Humanist Society. Here she said in 2005 about the review of the movie the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She entitled her article, Narnia Represents Everything That Is Most Hated About Religion. Of all the elements of Christianity, she said, the most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. She says, that's repugnant. Then she adds, did we ask him to? How blasphemous is that? But it offends, you see. It offends. It offends the philosopher. To the Jewish religionist, they're scandalized. To the Greek philosophers, it's moronic. It's senseless. It makes no sense whatsoever. And those two prevailing thoughts are still today. To the philosopher today, the whole business of Christianity is nuts. It makes no sense that a man died on the cross 2,000 years ago can save your life and that he rose again from the dead. It makes no sense. But to those who are being saved, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. These three crosses are significant and symbolic. They represent all men of all ages, saved, unsaved, lost, found, accepted, rejected. Two thieves. Somebody said that God saved one that none may despair, but only one that none may presume. Both had the same chance. Both had the same opportunity. But only one took it. Only one humbled himself 
except you become as a little child and said, Lord. And as soon as he said, Lord, he was recognized in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He believed at that moment that he is the Lord. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. No doubt he was thinking of a messianic kingdom that would come someday, one day. <laughs> but Jesus says, not today. Today. Your prayer will be answered quicker than you ever thought today. And this is the wonderful thing about salvation, folks. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, at that moment, something changes inside you. It's supernatural. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And you could not make it up. You couldn't because your life is changed from that point onwards. And this is the wonderful work of Christ in our lives. Assuredly, I say unto you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So there's the second word from the cross. And God willing, tonight we're going to look at the third word where Jesus addresses his mother. Beautiful, poignant, tender moment on that cross. In the midst of all of the suffering and all of the horror, Jesus still manages in these dying moments to take care of his precious mother. It's beautiful. So God willing, we'll look at that tonight and let's learn something from these things. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we realize today that we owe you an awful big debt, but we could never repay that debt. And that's why you freely, by grace, saved us. It was incapable, we were incapable of doing anything to save ourselves. But your grace and mercy won us and saved us. And so we thank you, Lord. And Lord, we don't want to wait to be like the thief on the cross and just get in by the skin of our teeth. Lord, we want to come early and know you early in our lives and walk with you early in our lives. So I pray for every man, woman, and boy and girl today under the sound of my voice at this moment. I pray that they will make that decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. That they would be born again of God's Spirit. That their lives would be transformed and that they would know Christ as their Lord. And so we ask this. I pray that this short word will go into the heart and it would bear fruit in due season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.